Welcome to Light for the Journey, a podcast of Russell Memorial United Methodist Church. Each week, we open the scriptures in faith that the timeless truth of God will guide us as we seek to follow in the steps of Jesus. This week's message comes from All Saints Sunday, the day in the Methodist calendar when we remember all of our brothers and sisters in Christ who have gone on before us. For this year's All Saints Sunday, in a year steeped in death for those of us in the United States, Pastor David Cartwright reminds us that although our fellow Christians may no longer be with us physically, they have become a part of the cloud of saints that is always there to guide us and intercede on our behalf. As we go to our message today, let's open our hearts and minds to the truth that God would speak to us. I'll invite you to turn in your scripture to Hebrews chapter 11. We will read there the last two verses of the chapter and the first two verses of chapter 12. Hebrews chapter 11, beginning at verse 39. Hear now God's word. And all these, having gained approval through their faith, did not receive what was promised, because God had provided something better for us, so that apart from us they would not be made perfect. Therefore, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us, Let us also lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God." This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Again, let us pray. In these moments, Lord, may our hearts and our minds be open and attentive to you. May your voice be the voice that is heard. May your truth be given by the words that I speak. Empower me, Lord, by your Holy Spirit, that your message is made loud and clear. We pray, God, that Jesus and he alone would be lifted up given praise and glory for every good thing that we now experience. We ask this in his precious name. Amen. It may have been last week as we were doing our Bible trivia that I mentioned to you the name of Fred Craddock. Uh, Fred Craddock is an eminent preaching professor, I believe still a professor of preaching emeritus at Candler School of Theology in Atlanta, Georgia. He tells an account of going back to the church he attended when he was a child. This was obviously a good number of years later. In the hills of Tennessee, as he arrived and was looking around the church building, he noticed that in the sanctuary there were new stained glass windows. And as he was admiring them and looking at them, he noticed also that at the bottom of each window was the name of the donor of that window. But he also noticed that from one window to the next, he didn't recognize any of the names of the people mentioned there. So he asked one of the church members who was with him and commented that uh, it, apparently the, there, are a lot of, uh, there have been a lot of people who have come into the church since I left. To which the church member replied, oh no, 
this town hasn't really grown much at all since you left, and neither has the church. You see, we purchased these windows actually from a company in Italy where they were made. They were made for a church in St. Louis, but when the windows got to that church, they discovered that the windows didn't fit. And so they contacted the company, and the company apologized, said they would make new windows, and that that church should just sell these windows to whomever they could. And we bought the windows from them. Craddock said, well, don't you want to take the names off of the windows? And the church member said, well, we thought about it, but we're a small church. Hardly anyone ever comes in. And we like to sit here on Sunday mornings surrounded by the names of people other than ourselves. It's an interesting image, surrounded by the names of people other than ourselves. Naturally, the names of people we know are the ones that seem to be most dear to us. But it's on this day that we remember that the cloud of witnesses is much larger than our list of names. And we are surrounded as we make this journey through life by a host of faithful people who have preceded us throughout the generations. It is about such people that the writer of Hebrews speaks to the people then determined to walk the path of faith. We should remember that for the writer of Hebrews, faith is something that is to be very keenly guarded. Uh, you, you'll see woven through the text, and I have to confess to you that I had to fight the urge to keep going back and to go back and to go back because, and I'm going to go back just a little bit, but if you go back a little bit, then you find, well, I want to go back to something else, and then you want to go back to something else, and we'd spend all this time just catching up to where we started. But for the writer of Hebrews, faith is something that, that, that someone should guard very, very carefully, that we, we should be careful that we don't become lax in our journey of faith, that we don't allow our faith to be uh, uh, discarded, that we don't become cold in our faith, that we don't cast it aside and therefore become ineffectual with our faith. Faith is something that we should guard very closely for this writer. And as the writer gets to our chapter 11, you know, that's that great role of faith in where the writer is recalling so many faithful ones whose names are quite familiar to us. Abel and Noah and Abraham and Sarah and Daniel and, and Gideon and a whole list of others who have, in one way or another, demonstrated faith in a very particular way. And that's one of the features of chapter 11 is that this writer not only mentions the names that are familiar to us, but reminds us of what it was about that person's life that stood out as an example of their faith. That's important to us, to be able to say not only about the ones here in the Scripture whose names are familiar to us, but also those of our own generation, that we can look to them and say, well, this person or that person was a person of faith. 
It's great to be able to say that, but it's better to be able to say, and here's why we can say they were a person of faith. Here is something about their life, something about their character, something that stood out to, to demonstrate why and how that person's faith is, is lively and vital and active and effectual. We name what it was about that person that makes them an example of faith. So the writer does this all through chapter 11, gets to the end of the chapter, at least the way we have chapters um, defined, and as we read, it says, and he says, all of these, which means the ones that he has named before, all of these having gained approval through their faith did not receive what was promised. That's an interesting statement. They did not receive what was promised. Did they or did they not? Well, let's think for a moment. I mean, uh, Sarah received the child, right? That was promised to her. Um, Noah received deliverance from a flood by his faithful act. You could go on down the list and say, well, wait a minute. It seems like they did receive what was promised, right? Well, we have to understand that the writer has something else in mind. Go back with me if you would. Uh, I told you we were going to go back, but not very far. In chapter 11, the writer has made it to, to what we call verse 13, and it's like the writer takes a pause. He's mentioned Abel, who offered a better sacrifice than Cain. He's mentioned Noah. He's mentioned Abraham. Uh, and then it's like the writer wants to take a pause and make a, an observation about them, where he says in verse 13, all of these died in faith without receiving the promises, but having seen them and having welcomed them from a distance, and having confessed that they were strangers and exiles on the earth, for those who say such things make it clear that they are seeking a country of their own. You say, well, what kind of country? Like Canaan or someplace like that? Well, wait, he's not done. Verse 15, if indeed they had been thinking of that country from which they went out, they would have had an opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country, that is what? A heavenly one. A heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared a city for them. This is what the writer of Hebrews has in mind. He looks at all of these people in faith who on one hand indeed received the promises that were tangible for them in that generation. But yet what he is looking at is all of these lived by faith looking for something that was distant, that was generations off. And they finished their course in life without having seen that come to fruition. Think, if you will, just kind of maybe as a, a, a picture. Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. Abraham becomes this, uh, this model of faith. Why? Because when God told him to pack off and move off to a far-off land, he does it. He doesn't ask for details. He gathers all his stuff, and he moves off, not understanding even where he was going. 
And then Abraham and then his son Isaac and his grandson Jacob become sojourners in a land that was going to be a land of promise. But at the time they lived there, it really wasn't a land of promise because that actually didn't happen in the sequence of life until the Hebrew people had been off in Egypt, become slaves, and then had been delivered through the wilderness, through Moses' leadership, and then back into that land under Joshua's leadership. You see, that, that's, when we think of things sequentially, we look at that and we say, now that, you see, that was a land of promise. God had told them he's going to bring them into it, they, they entered into that land and they claimed it and they could say this is the land that God has promised to us. But the promise was given even far back. Abraham understood that this is going to be a land of promise even though he didn't actually live in it as a land of promise. Your head's swimming, isn't it? You see, we, we tend to think of things sequentially and we kind of bring that into our reading of verses 39 and 40 in that chapter. The writer says, all of these having gained approval through their faith did not receive what was promised because God had provided something better for us so that apart from us they would not be made perfect, complete, complete. And we get in our minds like, okay, we have these faithful ones of generations past and they're just sitting around waiting, twiddling their thumbs because we're thinking sequentially, right? They can't go in until we get there. But maybe there's a better way to think about it. Rather than thinking about it in sequence, we can think of it as a way of what, what the writer is talking about is something that we receive together. The Asbury Bible commentary puts it very, very concisely and says this, that the key to understanding perfection in this epistle is that it is bestowed corporately. The promise to the faithful ones of God is a promise that is given to all of them together. The writer is saying that these people were not going to get to go in and become, uh, to, to enter into the, to the promise separated from us. You see, there are those in, in the sequence of years in life, there are those who preceded Jesus of Nazareth, and there are those who came after him. But all of the faithful ones, regardless of whether they preceded him on earth or followed them on earth, all of the faithful ones inherit the promise because of him. There is none that inherit the promise apart from him. We're all there because of Jesus. So these ones who died in faith could only look forward to a promise that would, in the course of years, become reality. You and I now understand how God, in the person of Jesus Christ, made for the faithful ones of all generations a better country, a heavenly one. And the thing that we find in these, in these heroes of faith is that they pressed on toward the promise that they wouldn't experience even in their course of life. That is such a remarkable, powerful statement to be able to say about someone who lived and died in faith, that they lived all of their years in this life looking for something that they would never see in this life.
They were yearning toward a better country. And that's why, as the old hymn says, this world is not my home. I'm what? Y'all know this. I'm just passing through my, what, what is it? It's, shoot, I can't re remember the rest of it now. That's what these people were saying. This world is not my home. I'm sojourning here, but there's a better land that I'm pressing on toward. And that's what the writer of Hebrews is trying to say to these who are hearing this for the first time, as well as we who 2,000 years later are reading these words. There is a better country toward which we should be pressing. We call it heaven. The, the, the book of Revelation calls it uh, you know, the new Jerusalem. There is you know, these terms that we put on it, but it's, it's a land of promise that God has for the faithful ones. And that's why when, verse, when chapter 12 begins, the writer says, Therefore, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us, these faithful ones throughout the generations, they are with us today and they are speaking to us today and what they are doing is encouraging us. You see, when he lists all these people of faith, he's not just building a memorial wall. He is building a case for motivation and encouragement for the disciple of Jesus Christ to press on, to not give up, to not let our, our, our passion for Jesus become lukewarm, to press on. And so he says, let us lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Think about those things for a moment with me. I, I, I appreciate how the writer delineates two very closely related things. Let us lay aside the encumbrance as well as the sin that so easily entangles us. An encumbrance is just something that hangs on you. It's something that weighs you down. There are, there are probably many things that we could point to in this life that become encumbrances to us. They're not immoral in their nature by themselves. They're really amoral. They have no moral value one way or another. But they can be to us things that just weigh us down. Now, you're probably thinking, all right, if you're being defensive, you're playing, all right, preacher, is this where you're going to tell me that I have to be like that uh, rich young ruler and Jesus is going to tell me to go sell all my possessions, give the proceeds to the poor, and then come back and follow him? No, that's not what I'm saying. Because Jesus doesn't say that to everybody. All I'm doing is, to, is saying that we should be able to evaluate our lives to look for things that end up only weighing us down. They, they, they keep us from thriving as witnesses in the world and disciples of Jesus Christ. When I was young, I, I enjoyed sports. Mostly I enjoyed basketball, which you can imagine. Being 6'4", you kind of enjoy basketball most of the time. When I was practicing, very often I would wear these things called ankle weights, okay? I don't know if people still use them, but we did. They, they strapped around your ankles, and they just added weight. You wore them to build your strength. You know, I'd wear them when I was doing drills. I'd wear them sometime when I was just scrimmaging with people. 
But do you know when I would never wear them? In a game, okay? Why would I not want to wear them in a game? Exactly. Why would you want to be weighed down in a game, okay? It would be ridiculous to wear them in a game. The writer of Hebrews is saying to the disciple of Jesus Christ, you're in the game, man. It's not time for wearing weights. It's not time for being weighed down with, time, with things. The, the, the life of discipleship is of utmost importance. Don't let your life be weighed down with things that just take away from your ability to be a witness in the world and a, and a faithful disciple of Jesus Christ. It doesn't mean that we can't have enjoyment in life. It doesn't mean that we can't own possessions along the way. But it just simply means to be able to look at your life and ask yourself this question, is there something that is doing nothing more than just weighing me down? And if there is, the writer would say, let go of it. Lay it aside. As well as looking for the sin that so easily entangles us. It's a great image to be entangled in something, which is something that sin certainly does. The Apostle Paul talks about this when he gets to the 8th chapter of the book of Romans. And he talks about the law of the spirit of life and the law of sin and death. And he talks for several verses about there about how those two things are in contrast to one another. They work against one another. Think if you would if you were a business owner. If you had a company that you were trying to run, you were trying to make it succeed, and you discovered that you had an employee who was doing everything he could to undermine the, the, the profitability of your company, would you keep that employee? If you found that he was embezzling funds from you, if you found that he was giving away your trade secrets to your competition, if you found that he was nurturing unhealthy attitudes among the workers, that there was poisonous gossip going on about you, would you keep that employee? Of course not. He, you wouldn't say, well, I mean, I know he's not the best thing to have around, but you know, I've learned to live with him. You wouldn't do that. You would say, hey, brother, take a hike. My business doesn't need you. Do you understand that that's exactly how the Bible describes sin working in our life? The Apostle Paul understands that sin working in our life is contradictory to us being followers of Christ. In Romans 8, verse 6, he talks about the mind being set on flesh being death, but the law that is set on the spirit being life and peace. Those two things don't go together. When we allow sinful habits to remain in our life, all we're doing is to allow something that is working in our life that works against God being able to use us to the greatest extent. And it's so easy for us to be complacent about it. You know, whether it's uh, lustful habits in our lives, whether it's uh, you know, the, the unhealthy attitudes that we might have towards somebody else, may, maybe even a brother or sister in the congregation, or maybe just somebody in the community. You know, we, we allow these, these negative thoughts to just kind of dwell in our minds. 
maybe it's slothfulness. It could be all kinds of things that the Bible would call sinful. And we get in this, uh, we get to this place where we can think, well, you know, I'm, I really like Jesus, but, you know, these things I just, uh, you know, it's just kind of part of who I am. It would be the same thing as you allowing that employee to remain in your business because all it's going to do is undermine the health of your discipleship. And the writer of Hebrews is saying to his people, you have to get rid of these things. You have to get rid of these things so that you can run with endurance, with perseverance, with the greatest passion and energy and effectiveness, the race that is set before you. We're in the game. And the game is not just a game. It is the purpose of the kingdom that God is working through us. It is that important. And in so doing, we have this opportunity to set our eyes on the ones who have gone before us. Now, of course, the one upon whom we truly set our eyes is Jesus. He is the one who has perfectly gone before us. He is the one described here as the author and perfecter or author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despised the, same and the shame, and is set down at the right hand of the throne of God. Yes, he has gone before us. But we also set our eyes upon the cloud of witnesses because it's on this day that we remember that there are so many others who are cheering us on, wanting us to succeed. Let me take one little side path, if I might. As we were doing our Bible study this week, you know, uh, there are a good dozen or so of us who are doing this Tony Evans Bible study uh, on, on Tuesday evenings. And as Carol was leading the group this past week, there was a question that she asked that's kind of lingered in my mind since Tuesday. And the question was, what's in your storehouse? If you watch many commercials, there's probably something else that rings in your mind. I won't take you there. Let me read a, just a short passage from the book of Matthew. Jesus teaches this in Matthew chapter 6, and we read in verse 19 through 21. Jesus says to us, Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth or rust destroy, where thieves do not break in or steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. There's that idea of storing things up. It's remarkable in our culture uh, how... Have you ever noticed how storage units seems to be one of the businesses of our culture, our society this day? I mean, can you imagine 50 years ago somebody marketing a strategy? You know, we're going to build these storage units and everybody's going to bring their stuff and put in them. You, people would have looked at you and said, What? I mean, but that's the business now because we store things. We have so much that our attics won't hold them and our garages won't hold them, and so we put things in, in storage units. And trust me, if you have a storage unit that you're using, 
It's not a criticism. I've used storage units also, and so it's, you know, we're, we're all kind of in this together. It, it kind of, it, it almost seems like as a culture, we're going to get to the point where your storage unit is going to be another status symbol. You know, I can hear people talking at a dinner party, and you know, how big is your storage unit? You know, oh, we have a 6 by 10. Oh, we have a 12 by 14. Climate controlled. We store things up. And again, I'm, you know, this is, it's, if you use a storage unit, it's fine. But we just have this propensity to store things. And the more we have, the more we store. And we have to find ways to store things. And Jesus is just reminding his hearers, even 2,000 years ago, you know what happens to tangible stuff when you store it up? Thieves steal it. Rust and moth break it down. And that's so often still the case with us. It's stuff that just, it, it has no lasting value to it. But yet we store it up anyway because it might be that we at some point want to uh, retrieve it and, and to make use of it. it. Sometimes we store things because we want someone else to benefit by it. We put things back that we want a child or a grandchild or someone else to, to have somewhere down the road. It, it has some, maybe a sentimental value or something like that. We store things up because we anticipate being able to gain benefit from them, from that thing. And Jesus is saying to his hearers, store things up that are of heavenly nature. And once again, Jesus doesn't do us the benefit of going into detail about what he's talking about. He just kind of sets up the contrast. There are earthly things and there are heavenly things. Store up heavenly things because the earth doesn't take them away. Now, in his message for this particular Bible lesson, Dr. Evans does a very good job of kind of talking about how some of those things are. Uh, they are some of the things that the world can't give to you. Those, those might be considered as heavenly treasures, you know, joy, peace, things like that, that God, uh, God, God and only God can give. You might think of heavenly treasures as things that do have eternal consequence to them. We might think of them also as things that might benefit us or they might be things that benefit others. So when we were doing Bible study, Carol asked this question, what's in your storehouse? And I really had to just kind of ponder the question, not only as we were meeting together, but in, in the days since. I thought, wow, that's, that's a really good question. What's in your storehouse? I'm still working on good answers to it. There were several people in the study that offered good answers. But there was one that first came to my mind, and it's probably because I already had my mind directed toward this Sunday morning's message. And I thought about relationships, the people that you build into the life that you live. It just seems to me that when you build relationships with a kingdom purpose, then you are storing up something that is a heavenly treasure. The earth can't take it away, even though we only journey this life for a certain number of years together. 
what you build into relationships are things that can have eternal consequence. Think, if you will, about the people who have impacted you. Maybe they have been people who have been generations before you. Timothy had a Paul in his life, someone who was like a father figure in the faith, someone to whom he could look and say, there's the person that has godly wisdom. There's the person that has shown me godly character. He's the one who has given me the insight on how to walk the path of discipleship. We need Paul's in our life, the ones generations ahead of us who show us the way. Likewise, we also need Timothy's in our life, the ones who can give us that perspective, even though we're further down the path than they are. They're the ones that can still build into our lives. We need Barnabas's in our lives, the ones who are just kind of uh, you know brothers or sisters in the faith who who prop you up when you're feeling weak and and you can talk about because you understand you're you're facing similar challenges, similar trials and temptations. You need those who are like the brothers and sisters and, and you can walk hand in hand in the journey of life. Relationships provide all, all kinds of opportunities. There's opportunities to nurture your family and I understand that particularly as a parent. And it also would apply as a grandparent or an aunt or an uncle or, or a cousin. We have these people who are in our circle of influence because they're family members. We have the opportunity to build kingdom things into their lives. Heavenly treasures. We have the opportunity to, to model godly character for those who are in our communities. We have the opportunity to bless other people by the, the fruit of the Spirit being active and alive in our life. I mean, think about when, when, when the Paul says uh, that the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. These things aren't just for our own joy, you know. Like, I can get all full of myself because, man, my, I'm loving and joyful and peaceful. And I mean, other people benefit from that. When you are around other people and you're a joyful person, you have peace in your life, you're patient, you're self-controlled, you're manifesting this spirit, you are a blessing to those around you. And if you don't think that's true, think for a moment about the people you encounter every week and think about the ones who, from whom you see that kind of fruit patience and kindness and joy and peace. They are blessings to you, are they not? Yes, they are. Through relationships, we have what the writer of Hebrews uh, paints as an opportunity to inspire one another to love and good deeds, Hebrews 10, 24. And I can't pass up the opportunity to remind you that the King James says provoke. Look it up. If you have a King James Bible, that's what it says. Provoke one another toward love and good deeds. Well, you know, I, I guess I'm weird. I just like these odd verses that are translated with words that we don't use. It sticks in my mind. We journey in this life with an opportunity 
to have a kingdom influence in the lives of those around us. And sometimes I think we forget what a powerful thing that is. But this is a day when we are called to remember. Because perhaps on this day, the cloud is just a little bit closer to us. Or maybe it's just a little bit closer in our minds. We're a little bit more attentive to it. A couple of years ago, our family vacationed over in eastern Tennessee. I was invited to go and perform a wedding for a family friend of ours in uh, Pigeon Forge. And so we went over there for the better part of a week and vacation. Of course, the Great Smoky National Park, Smoky Mountain National Park is right there. I'd grown up around there, but my, uh, my kids really haven't seen that part of the country too much. So I was looking forward to an opportunity to show them some of the things around there. And one of the uh, great uh, tourist attractions there is a place called Clingman's Dome. It's on, it's on the top of one of the highest peaks in that whole uh, region, uh, 6,600 and some feet. It's truly a place where when, when the weather is clear, you can see for a long, long way. And so where we were down in Pigeon Forge in our hotel, we could look up at the mountains in the surrounding area. And, and on, uh, you know, very often during the days, we'd look up and the clouds would be down covering the tops of the mountains. And I told Joanna, I said, we're going to go up there. She said, oh man, that'll be great. And she said, I want to touch the clouds. I said, baby, you don't understand what a good possibility you have doing that. And so we selected the day when we could go up, and we made the drive. We got up. It was not early morning by any means. I mean, we waited pretty late in the morning to go up. But we got up there, and sure enough, the clouds were all over the top of the mountain. Of course, you really can't realize it when you're up there. It looks like, just like you're in the middle of a fog, which technically you are. But we were in the middle of the clouds. And so I told her, I got my phone out, and I said, hold your hand up in the air. And I took a picture, and I said, there's a picture of you touching the clouds. And she was. I think we're invited to touch the cloud today. There's this cloud of witnesses, faithful people from generations before, who not only have gone on before us, but who are calling our name today. They still speak to us. And in that cloud of witnesses, there are the, the people who are the heroes of faith out of the Bible. Abraham, Moses, and David, and Daniel, and, and these people. And someday we're going to be able to to look them face to face and, and say, man, I grew up hearing about you. And there are going to be people like Tryphena and Tryphosa. Yes, you have to read Romans 16 in order to pick that up. And we'll be able to say to them, you know what? I, I never really learned anything about your life because the Bible didn't tell me, but I sure know that Paul appreciated your good work. I'd like to hear more about your story. There are going to be all kinds of people from the generations ensuing. Names that we've never heard before. But they're going to have stories that are very much like ours. 
of just pressing on in the life of faith. And perhaps today, what might be closest to our hearts are the names that are all around us. We put their names on windows, on pew ends, on memorial leaves, and in this church in some pretty strange other places. But we do that because we want to remember that these persons have lived in faith for the building of the kingdom. And we don't want to forget the impact that they've had in the life of this congregation and the life of our families. They still speak to us. Let's give ear that they may speak encouragement today. Would you pray with me? Gracious Father, we thank you that these uh, witnesses, these voices are always around us. And it's on a day like today that we raise our awareness that we might remember, that we might be encouraged, knowing God, those who have gone before us, remembering God the very particular ways that they demonstrated passionate, vital faith through their lives. Help us, God, to not forget so that we may continuously hear them encouraging us, press on, press on. The goal is worth the effort. So give us grace, Father, today and in the days to come to lay aside the things that hold us down and to rid ourselves from the sin that draws us from you that we might run effectively the race of discipleship so that Jesus Christ would be known through us and given glory. We pray it in his precious and powerful name. Amen. We're glad that you chose to spend this time with us in God's Word. You can catch our worship services online at www.rmumc.net. May the Lord grant you the light of his truth as you journey through this day.